Good morning, everyone. It's a, it's a pleasure and it's a privilege to be with you this morning. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you that we're able and free to reflect upon the person and work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And at this time of year, when people sometimes sing about him without knowing him, may we be instruments in your hands to joyfully spread the gospel, to tell the good news, to put reality into the season. We thank you for your spirit who guides and directs. We pray that you would guide and direct this morning and in these coming weeks of this season in Jesus' name, amen. Nearly seven years ago, I gave a message on Gideon, and I forgive you if you have forgotten that. <laughs> and um, about a month ago, I gave a message on courage. And a week ago, David McDonald spoke about the courage of a young man named Daniel. And um, in fact, I hope he doesn't mind, I'm actually gonna quote. I've got it in my slide, something that David McDonald said last week. And I, I feel that my message this morning is um, more like a New Year's message. It's, um, you may feel that this is a little bit <clears throat> um, an odd message for the Christmas season, but think of it this way. Think of it as a New Year's message. It's a message for New Year's because I think that we need um, courage. And the way that that can express itself is um, both individual and it is corporate. Lessons on warfare from Gideon, whom the New Testament refers to as Jerob Baal, the one who threw down Baal, who contended with Baal. And um, <clears throat> of course, I, in preparation, I do, do some research and I found it uh, very near Oxford University in England, uh, one of the Gospel Hall brothers had come up with a very good outline. And this is his outline. I'm not using it. <laughs> <clears throat> but it is good. It's very good. And <clears throat> I'd like to focus on just a couple of aspects of this well-known account of uh, Gideon. At the bottom, I've put my, my thought. <clears throat> I don't know if you noticed that in this uh, well-known account. It starts in a wine press and ends in a wine press. I don't know if you ever noticed that. That's, um, that's my own outline. I want to begin by reminding you of, of the place of the book of Judges in the Bible and uh, some discussion of the role of a leader versus the role of the individual or perhaps corporately the individuals amongst the children of God in, in Gideon and in the book of Judges. We are thinking of the earthly children of God and what is accomplished is by earthly means. We are the heavenly children of God. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's not a political citizenship at all, not at all. It's not a national citizenship in the political earthly sense. Our citizenship is in heaven. And the means that we use, of course, are not violent means. But that does not mean that we cannot learn from the Old Testament. That would be a ridiculous suggestion. There is much to learn, often in a figure, in a type from the Old Testament. So the two aspects of, of Gideon's victory I want to speak about this morning as you think of 2017. Wow, that seems like such a huge number. 2017. Uh, as you think about the coming year, which is almost upon us, our 
the individual aspect and the corporate aspect. We as individuals, as we face the future, I think we search our hearts. If we know the Lord, we want to serve the Lord. It is just part of being in relationship to the Lord, in a relationship of love, a personal relationship. It is natural, a natural outgrowth, as was alluded to earlier this morning, is to want to serve the Lord and to, to, to do it, um, as Oswald Chambers would say, thoughtlessly. When you do something joyfully, you often do it without thinking about it or keeping it in your memory that you ever did something. And, and we can think of how we might serve the Lord with courage in the coming year. And um, just a couple of aspects of Gideon's experience. One was this ridiculous wine press place. And the other is the, the epiphany that, that uh, came out of that. Secondly, the, the corporate aspect, we are not only individual Christians. I mean, shudder, uh, shudder to make you think, what if I was the only Christian in the entire city? How fun would that be? How difficult would that be? It would not be fun, it would be difficult. So we are a body, and we can think about maybe the, um, with regard to possible initiatives of this assembly in the new year, we can think about our corporate courage and our corporate will. Finally, um, some comments on the Six-Day War, an actual war that occurred in June of 1967, and um, finally, some New Testament scriptures for your encouragement. So, as we move through the Bible, uh, this is a, a diagram that was designed by the gentleman who married my wife and I um, nearly 35 years ago, and it, it helps the memory. It gives us uh, maybe some memory hooks, and where we are, you know, you have Joshua, a period of, of, uh, of, of a series of victories. You get a lot of encouragement from victories, don't you? And then you go into a period between about 1380 BC and, and the beginning of, of, of Saul and David, about 1000 BC. Think of that, you know, 3000 years ago, and these things are still speaking today with such power. We go from in that, in that approximately 400 year period in the book of Judges, a series of cycles. And um, when we look at this series of cycles, we, we might ask ourselves, what, why? What is, what is going on? The upswings, the upticks, and the high points are associated with the word judge, or in, in Hebrew, it's more like savior or deliverer, where a person is raised up by God to lead the children of Israel back to a place of being in proper relationship to him and a victory. And then the individual dies and the nation goes into decline. And sometimes when the nation goes into a decline, we read, for example, in Judges 17, the statement after sort of the, the decline as associated with the decline from the high point is, everybody went home is basically what it says to his own tent, to his own house. It seemed to the individual that things are now back to the usual chaos and there's no leadership and there's no direction and I have no idea what to do except to go home. This is actually a, a sort of a, a refrain in Judges, this, this idea everyone went back to his own tent, to his own house and did as he saw fit, which wasn't very good as it turns out, the, whatever that was, as he saw fit. And um, toward the end of that, it's interesting, uh, toward the beginning, I should say, toward the beginning of that series of cycles, 
that ends just before the monarchy. You might say Samuel is the last judge at the beginning of 1 Samuel. You have the appearance of a a very well-known figure. He's so respected and well-known that his uh, mechanisms, experience, and history are actually actively taught by the Israeli military as part of their um, uh, strategy and military doctrines. But we should point out, though, that by the time we get to Gideon, uh, we are now in our fourth apostasy, fourth, and we are on our sixth judge. So by the time you get to Gideon, the the children of Israel have already gone through a number of declines and seen a number of people uh, lift them out of the dregs. The previous was Deborah and Barak, and then the decline, and now the situation with Gideon. One of the lessons, I think, is, is that whether you have a human leader like Samson with very unusual physical strength, or whether you have a visionary like Deborah with the support of Barak, or whether you have a man like Gideon who's a very, very interesting character in multiple ways, they um, tend to fail. The end of the uh, cycle with Gideon is not very happy. And in fact, his son Abimelech um, was not a good leader and caused trouble. Perhaps another aspect of this cycle is the excessive reliance on human leaders. I think that should give us pause. When we come to Judges 6, I should have capitalized the word Midian. I did catch that typo and then I didn't act on it. When we come to Judges 6, we see the um, people again in a state of harassment And in their state of harassment by the Midianites, these are the uh, traveling desert dwellers who literally had many, many camels and who were very proficient in the use of uh, the the hit and run and that type of dominating warfare to, to never allow your opponent to settle down. Very adept at it. I think perhaps it goes part of being part of... um, very adaptable to a hostile landscape and being very mobile. I remember seeing some um, uh, nomadic d- desert dwellers in a very odd place in Israel, and I asked the tour guide, what, why is this guy living down there in that you know, barren little desert-like valley in that place there? It looks, I mean, there's, there's cities here, there's, houses, there's apartment buildings, there's water supplies, there's the entire infrastructure. Here's this guy with his entourage and family, multiple tents and all the stuff. It looked like this campground, right? In a very inhospitable location. And he said they, they like it. Some of the Arabs, they simply prefer that type of tent-based living. It goes back thousands of years. And they could do the hit-and-run stuff and come in and govern this country in a a fashion so that there was never any peace and there was fear. And it's interesting that the the lack of prosperity that resulted from that, and if I can make that a figurative thing, 
I wonder whether sometimes corporately and individually, we are harassed. And we are harassed for no good reason. We don't need to be harassed. And the result of this kind of sporadic harassment in our Christian lives and in our corporate life as an assembly is a lack of prosperity, an abnormal lack of prosperity. <clears throat> One of the things we read in Judges 6 is how um, Gideon finds himself in this wine press. And um, the prophet has already told the people what the problem is. You can read that uh, in the earlier parts of chapter 6. And then you find this man, Gideon, threshing grain in a wine press. Now, that's just illogical. And it is very constraining. And he had to do it in secret. It's, it's, uh, there's nothing good about this picture. It's an odd picture. It is the picture of an impoverished, spiritually impoverished, in this case, materially impoverished person. A, a, a threshing area would be 20 times that big. So, you know, there's this sense of confinement. Why do I have no sense of joy and freedom in my life here? This is a bit absurd. I am so confined, I, am not, I have so little grain to thresh, and I have to do it in this little thing, which is not intended for this purpose, and I have to do it at night. Everything is wrong with this picture. And then the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, and you can see what it says there. The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. It's interesting that Gideon doesn't say, really? I, thank you. Uh, I'm not sure what that means, but uh, thank you. And, and uh, what's, he just doesn't even want to talk about that. He actually shows some, I think in a way, some, some he's engaging in a reality check. It's almost as though he says, you know, I don't, I, I don't recognize what you're saying. I, I, this, this, this picture that I'm in here, it doesn't add up. This doesn't add up. Whatever I may be, this doesn't add up. I have no freedom, I have no prosperity, we as a people are oppressed. Everything is wrong with this. Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles? So here's a man who knows the scriptures and sees that there is a big disparity between how he should be living and how he is living. Regardless of potential that he may have, God says, you have a lot of potential. Well, regardless of what potential I may have, this situation is not good. So focusing on this maybe individual aspect, and we can think about our own Christian lives and our own uh, perhaps need for courage and challenges and what we might think of taking on. So as I've explained to you and I've tried to, to, to show you, here's a man who has an awareness of the inappropriateness and the disconnect between his experience and where he should be and where his people should be. He has that awareness. And what you'll see in, in Judges 6 through and 7 is that he can be woken up. Isn't that important in our Christian lives? It, it, it's one thing to say, you know, things are not the way they should be. Yes, okay. Can you be woken up out of that? Can you be made to realize some of the things that would need to be done in order to change that? 
Are you, as it were, awakeable? Thirdly, can you engage in the kind of maybe self-awareness that says, I need to be able to criticize myself. I need to be able to say, what's wrong? Maybe not only with, you know, it's easy to say the circumstances, the circumstances, the circumstances, my other people, my other people, my other people. This is, um, I guess, what a psychologist would call transference. Don't, don't point your finger at me. I, can, I got fingers and I can point at a lot of stuff that doesn't have a lot to do with me. He doesn't really um, focus on that. <clears throat> and as you will see, <coughs> excuse me, toward the end of chapter six, he's able to see, engage in house cleansing. <clears throat> and with these three things, what we see in Judges six and Judges seven is an epiphany. And that's the only part of this message that has anything to do with this time of year. Oh, my quote from last week. David McDonald said something very good. We need correct perceptions. In order for things to change, we need correct perception of who God is and what the problem is. We need correct perceptions. Now, what's an epiphany? Epiphaneros in Greek, and phaneros is the word that's used to, you, to translate into manifestation. It's one thing to see something. It's one thing to appear to you. It's a little more evident than merely to notice. And the third level is to be manifest to you. Do you get this? Do you get this? Is something manifest to you inwardly? Do you realize this? Up, it comes up, it's almost like from within to the top. Epi is the surface, it's on. Yes, we have all kinds of expressions for this, don't we? The penny dropped, it clicked. You know, we, what? We come to that point and we say, why did that take me so long to put that together? One of my, uh, my children used this word and uh, I thought, you know, I think that means something like to realize, but I don't know enough about that word so I had to look, do some research on that word. Now, it turns out that it is kind of a, uh, it is a religious word, if you like, if you're a Catholic or an Anglican or Eastern Orthodox, then, in fact, January 6th is the Epiphany with a capital E. Uh, in, in, at least it is in 2017, although for practical reasons they're putting it on Sunday the 3rd. Uh, this is, in, in, the, in the Catholic Church, what we were singing about earlier, about the Magi discovering Jesus and realizing that this is the Messiah. In the Eastern Orthodox, such as the Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, you would find it that it is intended to commemorate when, John, when, when Jesus is baptized and the Spirit identifies Jesus, and John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God. That revelation, that, that realization, as hopefully as a result of that revelation, of who Jesus really is. The second meaning, according to Webster, is an appearance or manifestation of a divine being in general. Well, what do you read in Judges 6? An angel actually came and talked to Gideon. You, you're a mighty warrior. So he had an epiphany in that sense because a divine being came and actually made an appearance to him. Now get this. The third meaning has two aspects, A and B. 
<clears throat> this is more the um, figurative or general English usage of the word. A, son, a sudden manifestation or perception. David McDonald was talking about perception. Perception of the essential nature or meaning of something, usually suddenly. Secondly, an intuitive grasp of reality, reality check through a simple and striking event. Thirdly, an illuminating discovery, realization, or disclosure. The B part of that is the scene or moment associated with that realization. You know what I see here? Every one of those things, all of them. Whether it was within Gideon or outside of Gideon, when you read chapter six and seven, you find all of these things, he had all of these kinds of epiphanies. I think then in our Christian lives, we need sometimes to have the penny drop, to, to have it click, to realize from the Lord what he would have us to be doing. Perhaps we're not reflective enough. Perhaps we're sleeping. We need to be awoken a little bit. We need something that the Lord has revealed to us, perhaps at a deeper level, to come up to the surface, into the head, and to start to make the gears turn as to what the Lord would have us to do. It happened to Gideon as well. The, um, the hill of Moreh, north of the valley of Jezreel, you know the story. You know about Gideon and, and how, you know, we have uh, 30,000 and 10,000, and no, it's too many, and how many are going to lap water like, uh, like this, and how many are going to put their mouths to, uh, down to a small number of people in the hundreds. We often think about the, you know, I'll show you the, the cartoon images, but we often think about Gideon, who has received these instructions and who has cleaned house and we think of him you know, leading them to the top overlooking that valley where they were camped, smashing the pots, revealing the lanterns and everybody crying out, think, noise, lots of noise. <clears throat> now, what if you have 10,000 people trying to sneak up on somebody? If you have a child in this building and you, and, and, uh, you say to the child, well, I want you to move all through this building um, like a cat. Or I want you to yell out at the right moment. Which one is the, cat, is the child going to be easier to imitate? The child is going to say, I'll yell out for you anytime you want. You want me to move around this building like a cat? That's really difficult. I think of uh, that poem by E.E. E. Cummings, The Fog Came in the Harbor on Little Cat Feet as silent as the fog coming in the harbor. doesn't make a single sound. Can you do that with 10,000 people? That's tough. That's tough with 10,000 people. But after it be reduced and reduced and reduced to the people who are 100% committed to this, then we're ready. We're ready to, to, to take action at the right moment. What was also necessary, of course, is some nerve, and some obedience. These men didn't necessarily um, see all of the wisdom or the cleverness in what Gideon had been instructed to do, but they did it. Sometimes just the plain, simple obedience. 
If you're a parent, you know something about this. You know, do we have to explain everything to the end for our children? No. In this moment, child, you are not getting an explanation. You must simply do what I am telling you. Explanation may come later, but in this moment, I need you to be simply obedient. And there's the passage. And we go from 22 to 10 to 300 overlooking this valley of the enemy at night. And suddenly, strike. In fact, they, they were so panicked, they turned their swords on each other. And it wouldn't be the first time, nor would it be the last time, that the enemy is in such a state of chaos that they actually start doing each other in. Now I turn to um, an actual war that happened in the first half of June in 1967. And <clears throat> that is an image of a book that I read in the eighth grade about three times. It was one of my precious books when I was a young teenager. I don't know why. I thought this was absolutely fascinating. You may remember that Israel has, has uh, there's kind of four most memorable wars with Israel. 1948, the War of Independence. Uh, 1956, associated with what was called the Suez Crisis. And uh, on the 1956 count, it's interesting, the, um, you know, you've been hearing about the, the spring, the Arab Spring and how that started with a vendor in Tunisia and spread. Well, back in the Cold War days, you may not remember this. Actually, I was born in 1956, so I only read about it, but I have Hungarian friends as well. In Hungary, there was a movement for freedom. That movement for freedom was the presage for what was called the Prague Spring. The Hungarian Spring was never called that, but it gave people hope. And do you know that um, at that time, they got assurances from the United States that if they rose up in Budapest against the Soviet domination, that the, that the Americans would back them up. And when the uprising occurred, there was no Americans to be found. It may have been part of God's greater plan. There might have resulted in a nuclear war. There are no Americans to be found. And do you know why? Because the Suez Crisis and the 1956 war in Israel broke out and they had to pick what they were going to do. And they picked Israel to back up Israel. And um, that was 1956. And the previous two wars were fought against incredible odds with great reversals of fortune, like the 1973 Rom Kippur. Yom Kippur War. 1967 wasn't like that. 1967, in the same way that Gideon had intelligence about the location of the enemy and his movements, in 1967, Israeli intelligence had enough eavesdropping going on in that year, 1967, they're eavesdropping enough on the Egyptians and reconnaissance flights to realize that they are about to attack. The Arabs were not going to have this anymore. They were going to strike first. 
and they were amassing their military hardware and personnel on the border. This was observable, but they had intelligence from the eavesdropping to back this up. So they struck first. And the first thing they did was to knock out the airfields. Those Mirage jets that they had purchased from France swooped in over the military airfields of Egypt and Syria and bombed the runways. Well, there's one thing I know about a runway. If it's got giant potholes in it, it doesn't matter how good your jets are. Jets need a really good runway. And a runway that's full of giant potholes is not a usable runway. This, in fact, uh, was an interesting thing with, with the Second World War that Hitler bombed London. Strategically, complete mistake, total mistake. Did the bombing of London demoralize the British to the point that they said we give up? In fact, it made them more resolved not to give up. What Hitler needed to do was to knock out the runways so that the Spitfires and Hurricanes, flying fortresses and B-17s couldn't take off to come to his country. And then he would have air superiority. So very quickly, the, the Israelis uh, achieved immediate air superiority. Here's Gideon overlooking this valley. He's got the light, he's got the advantage, and it's almost like air superiority. Very quickly after that, with the mechanized armor, they, uh, by fighting, by, by excellent tactics and excellent fighting, they took over the, um, the battlefield with the tanks, tank superiority. And the hero of that was uh, a fascinating character named Moshe Dayan. And he's a character because everybody can almost recognize him right off because of his black eye patch. And he uh, was a genius, military genius. And he had trained his men so well in the tactics of mechanized warfare that they quickly also gained superiority on the ground. The uh, famous pictures that went across the media across the world were, uh, uh, it's not there, but <clears throat> soldiers crying, Jewish soldiers crying at the Wailing Wall that the Temple Mount was, East Jerusalem was once again in Jewish hands and there was the place where they even worship to this day on Friday night, the beginning of the Sabbath, they are there at the Wailing Wall. That was taken in 1967. So the Gaza Strip and Sinai Peninsula, Egypt lost them, the West Bank and East Jerusalem, Jordan lost them, the Golan Heights, Syria lost them. The casualty rate was about 20,000 Arabs to about a thousand, maybe, they think maybe a thousand Jews, Israelis. Interesting. There's Moshe Dan. The Israeli Defense Force formally studies and uses the principles of Gideon. It's kind of like their manifesto now. You can go online and look at, look at their policy, their political military policy. And there he is uh, with his men. His men absolutely loved him. What is this, um, what are the principles of this? It's interesting, it's instructive that, you know, and it's also interesting that you have a modern military going back to Judges chapter six and seven. I think that's very interesting. When there is a war, you might call it a negotiation, but what is the currency of the negotiation in war? It is the most scary currency of all. It is violence. It is a violence-based negotiation. Let's understand that. 
Let's understand that. As Christians in our spiritual warfare, we, know, we need to understand this is serious business. We need to understand that it's serious business. The second point, and you can see it very clearly in the Bible, you never let the, the, the enemy uh, dictate the terms of this negotiation. That is the when and the where and the how. You need to be the one to decide on the when and the where and the how. As you can see from the chaos caused by these men running in with the light and the noise, they probably imagined that they were being taken over by tens of thousands of men. Finally, when you look at the 300 men, this is the principle of commitment. If you're gonna be involved in this, you need to be 100% committed. In fact, in Deuteronomy, um, it may have been in Gideon's mind. In fact, Moses said, if you have faint-hearted people among you, leave them home. That might have been in Gideon's mind. What are some of the other principles here that are interesting? You need to see more than your enemy. If you see opposition, and all you can see is opposition, opposition fills your view, you're gonna be focusing on that too much. You need to see more than that. You need to see the Lord's hand at work. And although you're not gonna be overwhelmed visually, you need to know where he is. You need to know where he is. If you're gonna have a surprise attack, that will have great shock value, and the Israelis strongly believe in that, and you can see that in the 1967 attack. And it needs to have perfect timing. You should try to start from the high ground, and it's interesting that the high ground doesn't have to be taken by force if you're smart. That's what you see in the Bible. <clears throat> this is the verse in Deuteronomy that I alluded to. Then the officers shall speak further to the people and say, who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house so that he might not make his brother's heart melt like his heart. Corporately, I think that says something too. David, David fought many battles, a very successful warrior. It's a remarkable thing that he would say this, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. We might see a lot of chariots and horses, but that's not going to overtake our minds because we understand that victory is in God's hand. Here's an interesting excerpt from Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes is a very different sort of a book. It's almost uh, someone standing outside of the Bible and looking at um, the world and the way things work from an almost secular point of view so the preacher says, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. It is not necessarily, anyway, in the general scheme of things. We know this, that due to things like timing and chance, that even the good guys don't necessarily win in terms of good military, fast, strong, capable. Do they necessarily win? Nope. We know that anyway. Therefore... If the Lord is with you, it's not a secular point of view. You're not reduced to Ecclesiastes 9 to say, well, it's by chance. We might win, we might not win. That's true. But if the Lord is with you, you have a tremendous advantage. You might say that um, 
you know, a bunch of pots and torches and things. It's kind of weak. But the Apostle Paul could say that I have found that God's grace is sufficient for me individually. I'm full of weakness. I don't have the fanciest weapons. I'm, but we have grace. The individual Christian has grace. So that Paul learned to be content with his weaknesses, as it says there. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Some thoughts for you as we close. It's uh, five after 12 and we have a potluck. Some encouraging, encouraging verses and uh, instructive verses. For we wrestle, as I read a month ago, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We need to be committed. We need to understand our enemy, and we need to go in the grace of God. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. We don't play games in this realm. If we allow ourselves to be weak, we are fodder for the evil one. We need to go in grace, and I believe that in, in, the, in the protection of grace, the enemy is blind and deaf, and when we pray, we are invoking weapons that he has no defense against. Finally, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work in the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We have the best outcome. We have the best possible outcome. And we can look forward to that. And I trust that this morning, as we've considered these few thoughts about uh, the individual and the corporate body of Christ, and as we think of the year 2017, the Lord would guide us, the Lord would speak to us. There may be an initiative that the Lord wants you to take. There may be an initiative that he wants us to take. We need to be courageous, we need to draw on grace, and we can expect in faith a wonderful outcome. Shall we pray? We thank you, Father, for your word, and we pray that um, we would have these realizations of what you would have us to do individually and corporately. We thank you for our Savior who has gone before us, who has paid the debt of sin, who has made us free so that we can live freely in open space with abundance. We pray that you would protect us and guide us in the coming year. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh,